So earlier this weekend on the Friday and Saturday, our um, council and staff had the uh, awesome opportunity to have a little retreat together. And for those of you who are less aware of the trajectory that we're on here in terms of the sermon series and everything, the sermon series that we're in the middle of right now is titled Caring Encounters, and it's based a lot on the work of the um, social work professor uh, at Redeemer University, Dr. Morgan Braganza. And so this weekend, we had the pleasure of having her uh, lead us in this retreat as our guest speaker. And um, I think I can safely speak for everyone who was there that we just had such a great time. We learned uh, a lot. I learned a lot about how to engage with people in difficult conversations and to hold on to each other even through our differences, through caring encounters. And so throughout this sermon series that we're on, we're also in a mini-series within that series. And so this mini-series is called Jesus Hospitality. And so last week, Pastor Eric preaching on Jesus Hospitality, and this week I'm on. And then next week will be Pastor Jolene also on Jesus' hospitality. So let's turn to our scripture readings for this morning. It's a unique passage, which excites me. John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. If you're interested in following on a, on a hard copy Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen as well, and you could follow along there. John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
about a week and a half ago, we had a Mountain View Young Adults Gathering, which I hope to continue to see grow. So just in case any other young adults are listening who haven't had the opportunity to come, we're meeting again on December 9, and you should come. We meet at Judge and Jester, which is a pub here in Grimsby, and I order some food for the whole table. We get to share. In the last meeting, we had a really great conversation about forgiveness. And so I'm excited that now this morning to get to preach to the whole congregation on the same topic. And I want to make another quick call back to some other ministry I'm doing when I'm not up here. Last week at youth group, and I asked this question to our youth and the youth leaders. Why do we read the Bible? Isn't it full of historical inaccuracies? Isn't it full of stories that contradict each other? It's a hard question, which is why I asked it. So as an example, we talked about Jesus clearing the temple. Perhaps that's a story you're familiar with. If you look for this story in the four Gospels that are at the beginning of the New Testament, you'll find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus clears the temple at the very end of his ministry. There's a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he clears the temple. But John puts the same story at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, three years earlier. Jesus has the wedding at Cana, and he goes and clears the temple. Weird, right? The truth of the matter is that in the Near East, this is the place where the Bible took place and where it was written. In the Near East, in ancient times, they saw history very differently than we do today. Today, we really like science. And back then, science wasn't even a thing. So it was actually commonplace for writers to kind of get an idea of the whole picture and then move stories around however they wanted them to because it got their theme or their underlying message across better. That was normal when it came to writing history. It was more about storytelling than putting things in chronological order. The reason that I bring all of this up is because it's important to recognize when we look at John chapter 8, It's a very strange passage. If you were looking uh, in a hard copy Bible or maybe on your phone or something, you might have seen something that I didn't actually read out loud in the scripture reading. Before we even get to the actual story, there's kind of a page break there and you have a phrase in italics or maybe in brackets that says, the earliest manuscript and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. We just read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. 
So the earliest manuscripts don't have this story. This is weird. Even for the Bible. So let's dive in. It is widely thought by a lot of scholars, and I mean a lot, that John did not write this story. One of the commentaries I looked up doesn't actually have any comments on this story other than saying that this section is generally pronounced by the best critics, the best critical authorities not to belong to John's gospel, and then it just moves on and jumps to verse 12. And no one seems to deny that this story is very possibly true, very likely to be true. It just probably wasn't written by John and was put here later on by somebody else. So if John didn't write it, then why on earth is it in the Bible? Should we even bother studying it at all or kind of like that commentary, should we just skip over it and keep moving on? Well, let me go back to our discussion that we had at youth group last week. When we were talking about history in the Bible, we concluded the discussion by asking, what's the function of the Bible? Why do Christians put so much emphasis on reading the Bible so often? Why should we worry about doing that? Well... For one thing, the Bible isn't a history textbook, and so we shouldn't treat it like it is. Instead, the Bible is actually how we can encounter God. It's His love letter to us, written by Him. It shows us what He's done to prove His love for you and for me. And it contains what he promises to continue to do in the future. So, yes, we can conclude that this story here at the beginning of John 8 is probably true. But that's not actually what makes it an important story or what makes it worthwhile to study. What makes it worthwhile to study is the encounter with Jesus that we have when we read it. We learn something about Jesus. We learn something about ourselves. Jesus begins the story by entering the temple bright and early, like any good rabbi would. And in verse 2, it says, He sat down to teach them. But little did the people realize the lesson that they were actually going to learn story takes a quick turn in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the whole group. What a humiliating scene for this poor woman. A sinner, an adulterer, 
Maybe a prostitute, you might jump to that. Sure. But to be dragged out in the middle of a large crowd in the temple, a holy place, could you possibly even imagine a more judgmental scene? She stands alone in public, surrounded by angry accusers who seek her death. Crowd probably looks on at her as this disgusting, adulterous, sinful, worthless woman. She's helpless. For the Pharisees, the woman is a means to an end. Verse 6 tells us that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So they accused this woman of adultery in order that they might have something to accuse Jesus about. They want to try to trick Jesus and put him in a scenario where no matter what he does, he's going to be in trouble. So if you remember, at this time in history, Israel is under Roman occupation. And the Romans did not allow the Jews to conduct their own death sentences without their permission. So if Jesus had said, yes, let's stone her, he would have been in trouble with the Romans. But if Jesus had said, no, let's not stone her, then it's very easy to make the conclusion that Jesus is disagreeing or unsupportive of the law of Moses. No matter what he says, he's in trouble. Speaking of the law of Moses, let's take a quick look together at what it actually had to say about adultery. For starters, Jewish law requires witnesses who had physically seen the act in order to properly put someone on trial and condemn them. And secondly, adultery isn't exactly the kind of sin that you can commit alone. The law requires the execution of both people, not just a woman. And so we have to ask, in this scenario, where's the man? It seems likely to me that this is more than a bit staged. And the man is given a free way out for playing his part. Additionally, they altered the law a little. The manner of execution for adultery was not prescribed unless the woman was a betrothed virgin. Deuteronomy 22, if you wanted to look it up. So Moses did not actually command to stone such women, as the Pharisees claim in verse 5. One final piece I want to bring up about the law. When it came to stoning, 
the witnesses always threw the first stone. Deuteronomy 17. And this is so that the witnesses might feel the responsibility of the evidence that they've given. Not only would they have to be the witnesses, they would have to be the executioners. In this case, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come forward as witnesses, claiming falsely in verse 5 that in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And they want to test Jesus' faithfulness to this law by asking, Now what do you say, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't answer. Instead, he writes on the ground with his fingers. And when I read that, I go, Jesus is acting weird. This is a bit of a strange and a confusing response to the question that's posed to him. And no matter where you look in terms of scholars and commentaries, nobody can really say for certain what on earth is going on here. Some scholars note that this is the only time we find where Jesus writes something. And there's only one time in the Old Testament where God writes something. The two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments were said to be written by the finger of God. And here, Jesus writes on the ground with his finger. There's a connection. But what exactly does he write? Some think that Jesus wrote passages in the Old Testament that had to do with adultery, like Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 22. Others suggest that Jesus is actually writing the sins of the accusers. A few later manuscripts even include this phrase that Jesus wrote the sins of, the, of each of them on the ground. Maybe Jesus is making a reference to Jeremiah 17, verse 13b. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. When Jesus writes on the ground, there is at least one clear thing that he accomplishes. The eyes of the crowd and the eyes of the reader turn from the adulterous woman to Jesus. And we all stare at him in confusion and we're forced to ask, what in the world is he doing? Why isn't he answering them? Jesus recognizes the shame of the woman. And he subtly brings the attention of the story from her onto himself. And as we now stare confusedly at Jesus... We find him writing something on the ground, and we find him 
avoiding the Pharisee's questions. He doesn't answer them right away. When someone asks me a question and I immediately start doing something else, I think it shows I'm probably not very interested in giving them an answer. But they continue to press Jesus until he finally does answer them in verse 7. And this is what he says. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus sort of says, if you're perfect, go ahead. You have to be perfect in order to judge and condemn. And so Jesus levels the playing field between the accusers and the crowd and the woman. None of them are without sin. And they know it. They asked their question because they had hoped to trap Jesus into saying something that they could accuse him of, something that would get him in trouble. Instead, Jesus' wise response affirms nothing. But rather, he turns them back into their own hearts. As per usual, Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus wants the heart of the law. Did these witnesses really care about honoring God's law? Was their heart somewhere else? you remember, as I mentioned earlier, the witnesses were supposed to be the the first to, to throw a stone at her, as Jesus puts it here. But false witnesses were to pay the same penalty that they had hoped to inflict on the person that they accused. This is Deuteronomy 19. So if their witness was false then they too would need to be stoned. And in the end, we read that no stones were thrown at anyone. Verse 9. They began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first. So think with me for a minute about Jewish culture and the value that they put on age. The older ones left first. The most respected. The wisest. Left first. Jesus' response to their question sends them all inward. And upon examination... Their conscience cuts them to the core. They know they weren't perfect. They knew that. And so instead of stoning the woman, they all left. In their eagerness to entrap Jesus, they accused this woman. They sought to condemn her. But they, in the process, forgot about their own guilt. 
And I think we often fail to recognize our own faults. Especially when it can be really easy to see the faults of other people. We might struggle to look inward. Because we might not even like what we find. We too are all full of faults, mistakes. Some we might not even be aware of. That's fair. Others, I think we might be aware of, but we don't want to acknowledge for one reason or another. The fault of this woman is clearly laid out for everyone to see. But they've all gone away. And only Jesus is left with the woman still standing there. Only Jesus and the woman are left. So in the absence of all witnesses and accusers, there's no longer any case before the woman. Remember, the witnesses are supposed to be the executioners. But no witnesses remain. No executioner is to be found for her. Instead of stones being cast, here we find our caring encounter. Here we find Jesus' hospitality in his conversation with the woman. And I want to start by pointing out the things that Jesus doesn't say to her. First, we might notice that Jesus doesn't ask if she's guilty or not. Moreover, Jesus doesn't try to convince her that she's a sinful person. He doesn't say something like, you know, adultery is bad, right? Don't you know how sinful that is? Like, shame on you. Jesus doesn't say that. She doesn't need to hear that. And in fact, I would say that in just about every case, not all, but just about every, no one needs to hear that. In my experience, most people actually have a pretty good idea of how bad they are. And so it isn't Jesus' goal in his conversation to try to convince her that she's a sinful person. And it doesn't need to be our goal either. When someone you know is caught in sin, the sin is revealed to you or more people. And how do you respond? Are you quick to judge them and label them according to their sin? Are you quick to condemn? Or have you taken the time to 
take an honest look inward. When you recognize your own sinfulness and your own faults, I think you're more likely to extend mercy to the people around you. You recognize we all need it. It's God's role to judge. And I don't think it's ours. Instead, our role, as which Jesus exemplifies in this story here, is to show hospitality to people who are hurting. To show a to extend a radical forgiveness. Look at verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Verse 11. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't even require repentance on her end. He doesn't even ask her to say sorry. And he declares her as uncondemned. She is forgiven. No repentance required. No penance. No punishment. No nothing. Nothing from her. Forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus doesn't condemn her for her sin, but he does tell her to stop sinning. He offers wisdom and and guidance from a loving and an understanding place. It's sort of like he says, we we both know that what you did was, was wrong, was not okay. I forgive you anyways. And I urge you to stop. For your own sake. Let's move on from this. And I will move on with you. I'm not going to hold this against you in the future. I'm going to continue to forgive you for your mistakes. She's radically forgiven and immediately given permission by Jesus to move on with her life. And we all have the same permission to move on. So don't sit in your mistakes for longer than you really have to. I think it's good to reflect when we do make mistakes, but it's equally as important to quickly embrace the forgiveness that Jesus has waiting for us. Embrace Jesus' forgiveness. God knows everything, right? God knows that we're all on a journey here. And it's a process for each of us. 
God knows we're on a process and He knows each failure for us as humans is part of the process. God values your growth. You've been forgiven. Move on. We should practice forgiving others with the same radical forgiveness. We both know what you did was not okay. But I forgive you. No repentance. No revenge. No punishment required. I won't hold it against you. Let's move on together. Now, I acknowledge we aren't all as good at forgiveness as Jesus is. So, you might not get there right away, and I think that's okay. But believe me that it is so relieving when you do. So let's work to not let grudges fester, to forgive others, and to be forgiven. So I think it's important not just that we forgive others, but also that we sort of forgive ourselves with radical forgiveness. But Jesus knows your sin. And He's actually the one who offers you radical forgiveness. No punishment, no real repentance required. For me, even though I know that Jesus has forgiven me, I still sometimes find it hard to fully receive the forgiveness that He's given me. I just feel like I like more punishment, more repentance is required. And I have to do something to earn this forgiveness. But that's not how Jesus forgives. Let Jesus' hospitality wash over you like baptism water. Let Jesus care and counter you. No more guilt. No more shame. Don't hold your past failures against yourself anymore. Let's move on. God doesn't require punishment from you. Because Jesus already faced the punishment on the cross. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have all been paid for by Jesus' death and His resurrection. Forgiveness is waiting for you. And all you have to do is embrace it. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your 
radical forgiveness. We thank you for your hospitality. We pray that you would help us to embrace and accept the forgiveness that you have waiting for us. Help us to also forgive in radical ways. Help us to forgive, to be forgiven, and to move on. Amen.